Hey everybody, welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. This is the only show that we know of that aims to educate and enrich your noggin on matters of mental wellness and illness through various conversations on psychological functioning, emotional functioning, spirituality, social topics, and all sorts of good stuff. And today we have Kevin Dixie, a buddy of mine, nicknamed KD, you can call him KD, discussing mentorship, uh, fatherhood, uh, broken homes, race relations, uh, the racist aspects of firearms control, all sorts of stuff. We run the gamut in this show, and um, I'm really glad to to have him on. My name is Jake Wiskirchen. I'm your host. If you don't know that by now, um, I guess just listen to a few more episodes, and then you'll, and then you'll have it memorized. I uh, I co-own a company called Zephyr Wellness. It is the sponsor of this show, and Zephyr Wellness is in northern Nevada. We're a mental health outpatient counseling agency. We do lots of cool stuff. Check out ZephyrWellness.org to learn more, but on the surface, we integrate into the community with different partnering agencies, both governmental and non-governmental, and uh, we also utilize graduate students in their practicum uh, semesters, and the, what we do with them is... We get them the experience they need in clinical hours before they graduate, and in doing so, we get to avoid turning away people from the community who seek help because the graduate students act as free labor for us. They're getting their education. We are mentoring them through it and educating them, and in turn, the community gets to come in and receive services under strong supervision regardless of their ability to pay or their insurance coverage. So we literally don't have to turn anybody away. It's really nice, and that's one of the proudest things I think I've ever done in my career. The show is also sponsored by Audible. If you have not checked out Audible, you should. And you can with a free trial at audibletrial.com slash notes. That's uh, their way of helping us. It's our way of helping them. If you don't know what Audible is, go check it out. Or just listen for the next 30 seconds because I'm going to tell you what it is. It's an unmatched selection of audio content, mostly books, but also news and entertainment. And you can download this stuff and listen to it through your own earbuds on your mobile device, on a desktop computer. You can listen uh, through Bluetooth in your car while you're driving. So if you have some books that you've been meaning to get to and you just can't find the time to sit on and read them, Audiobooks are the way to go. Go to audibletrial.com slash notes and get a free 30-day trial. And along with that 30-day trial, you will also get a free download. And you can keep that download even if you decide not to renew and continue paying after your 30 days are up. audibletrial.com slash notes. It's a great way to help yourself and help us and help make Earth better, which is what this podcast tries to do every time we take to the air. Without further delay, this is my interview with Kevin Dixie. I hope you find it educational. Please reach out to us if you do. Info at nogginnotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org. Have a good one. So this week on the podcast, we've got with us Kevin Dixie. Hi, Kevin. Hey, man. How are you? Doing well. And you're back home now, right? You're in St. Louis? I am. And is it actually St. Louis or some uh, neighborhood or suburb thereof? Okay, close enough to, to claim it then. Um, so I wanted to have you on. I, I'm going to tell the audience just a little bit about how we met. So 
you and I met when we went down to a, a gun rights policy conference in Arizona a couple of months back, and I was down there for Walk the Talk America, and you know, which if the people aren't familiar, Walk the Talk America is trying to bridge the gap between gun culture and mental health culture, uh, and obviously I'm the mental health guy part of that, and um, and we you and I met and we were discussing a whole bunch of stuff, but what really intrigued me about what you do is. Um, you do some mentorship in the in the community with young men, and you do a lot of fatherhood stuff. And I really want to engage in that. But mostly at, at this point, I just want you to introduce yourself to the world and say what it is you do, because you wear a ton of hats, and a lot of it is in the firearms community, and you do some instruction and stuff. Um, so go ahead and tell everybody who you are and what you do. All right, well, my name is uh, what's Kevin Dixie. Everybody calls me Katie just for my initials. I am uh, born and bred in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, proud of it. I'm from the city's uh, north side, even though I live all over in, in every single sector of this area. But I, uh, I spent most of my uh, um, formative years in the, the north side of St. Louis. I uh, let's see. I'm married. Got two wonderful kids. And as far as what I uh, what I do in firearms, I am a firearms trainer, uh, educator, and men- mentor with firearms, kind of bringing a different uh, spiel to the normal, hey, everybody has to be a tactical ninja doing burrow rolls and all <laughs> and stuff like that. I kind of kind of bring it uh, down to a different level. Just, you know, I like to, I like to focus on uh, everybody just understanding really what, what guns are for and how they should be used. And as far as my community outreach, I run a program called Aiming for the Truth. Aiming for the Truth is a program that I came up with where we focus on the root causes of violence instead of blaming a tool or even a system. We want to deal with the root causes of violence and really get to the roots and solve them. So we do that in a a multitude of ways, but um, the biggest ones are we, first we talk about mental health. um, I know mental illness is not the correct thing to say, so I've been trying to get better with saying mental health. Uh, We talk about mental health and its effects. Uh, I am a survivor of uh, depression and anxiety clinical, so I, I understand what that looks like in my own little world. So I don't try to be a professional, like I'm not you, but I am I am a survivor, but I walked it for, for 20 plus years. So um, understanding what that looks like and how to defeat it, but also understanding what it can lead to, how if your mind's not right, that leads you down different paths in life that could lead you to being violent or unproductive in life, right? And thus, if you're unproductive, you don't value life, and then you go out and do silly things anyway. So we talk about uh, mental health, and we make it, we kind of break the stigma in the, especially not only, I don't want people to think, oh, he only helps people that look like him. Not only, but uh, in my immediate area, there is a stigma when it comes to mental health. And it's, to just be frankly honest, it's a white man's problem. And that's what's always been said. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, uh, we don't suffer from, yeah, you do. That's a, it's an everybody problem. It's a human problem. So breaking that stigma and letting people know, like, hey, the reason why guys are looking to fight for any reason, the reason why people are lashing out, the reason why you can't take somebody step on your shoes, the reason why I roll rage to leave, is a lot of times people have anger issues. They're dealing with other things they haven't addressed, and it just topples over. So we deal with that, and I like to let people know, too, if you can, um, if America can say that if we send one of our boys and girls overseas to fight for, say, two years, and they come back and they're dealing with PTSD. You know, they went to a battlefield, they came back, and, you know, we have to help them get right. Imagine what somebody goes through if they live there for 20, 25 years. Imagine okay. what they're going through every day. And he's in these different uh, areas around the country. There are battlefields of their own. So 
we have to we have to really address the mental component. Now, then I want to deal with fathers. Fathers are uh, I'm very passionate about fathers, and I believe that fathers are the missing link uh, to healing this country and a lot of its ills. The absentee fathers is a problem, um, and we we have to do better with that. So I try to give fathers encouragement and give them some tools and some resources and a lot of conversation to motivate them and to educate them why it's important for them to be back into the household. Uh, if it doesn't mean that you and mom are going to reconcile your relationship and you're going to be a loving couple uh, again, it doesn't mean that you can't have a healthy relationship with the kids. And I'm, a, I'm a, a man that grew up without a father. So I understand the pain that, 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 that lingers with that. So not only am I talking to them as a dad, I'm talking to them as the kid because I remember what that felt like. Um, and we're, we're trying to really help dads and coach them to being better. And a lot of these guys just haven't had the chance because they, their story is like my story. So it's, you know, we just, we continue to pass on the misery. We just pass it down. Hey, I made it. Why can't they type of attitude? And we want to change that and give them some resources. Uh, and then we'll also deal with kids, you know, help kids get a better education, take them out of their normal environment. Uh, for example, tomorrow, uh, which you helped with as well, uh, we're taking 50-ish uh, plus the chaperones. So 50-ish kids uh, and other community leaders to see the movie Harriet tomorrow. And Harriet obviously is about Harriet Tubman, um, a great story about civil rights and slavery and those things. So we're going to go take them to see that movie and then have a lunch with them afterwards to help them digest and understand uh, why they should be fighting so hard for their life, looking at how others sacrifice for them to have that opportunity and um, educate people at the same time. And the more you educate the mind and you equip it, the more people start to value things around them. And they're so busy feeding that hunger to know more. They're not worried about, you know, arguing with the neighbor or, you know, having a shootout with somebody that, that they disagree with or whatever. So keeping that mind occupied and letting these kids know there's more to life uh, than what they normally see. So uh, that could be linking them up with the Boy Scouts, getting them out camping, fishing, just showing them some different things. And always uh, being there myself, you know, letting them know that the men in their community actually do care about them and, and just being there for them, even, out, even if they do have a dad, just always being an extra outlet. Uh, and we, we help people deal with any other kind of ailments or issues they have in their life. Sometimes it's, I don't know how to uh, stop fighting. Sometimes it's, you know, hey, I, I, I'm a woman beater. How do I get over that? Uh, some, we've had people come to us with addiction problems. And we also, with employment, that's another thing we help out with. Uh, with employment, we're, we're helping out with employment skills and linking individuals up. Uh, one group we work with here in St. Louis is called Connections to Success. And they link people up with different uh, corporate employers around the area. But a lot of these individuals don't know how to write resumes, don't know how to tie ties. So um, aiming for the truth provides that first step if you want to learn those basic skills or be linked with somebody that can really take the time to help you develop those basic skills. Because if I can get you those basic skills and um, have a conversation with you about what employers are looking for from the moment you walk in the door, we can get you employed, get you taking care of your family, get your mind equipped better, get you understanding conflict and conflict resolution, and, and get you to understand why America is so valuable and what people have done or did for you rather to um, afford you the opportunity to live a prosperous life, then the better off we are. And those people always resort to violent measures. I that, know it was a long way of saying everything, but that, <laughs> that, that is uh, the longest introduction I think I've ever had, and it is pr the most robust and probably the most complex. Um, going all the way back, though, in the, in the beginning, I really appreciate that you said uh, you made a distinction between mental health and mental illness. So, um, Mental illness, from a professional's perspective, is what you walk in the door with when you seek help, and then mental health is what you leave with after you're cured. It's very, very similar to physical ailments, so it's okay to say that somebody's sick. Uh, we just want to make sure that we're holding it in the same context that we allow them to heal, 
And, um, and I appreciate, so the second thing I really appreciate is you said, you know, you're a mental illness survivor, which we should all aim for. Um, if mental illness could not be recovered from, then my profession would cease to exist because nobody would ever get better. And that's just nonsensical. So yes, you can recover. You should be able to push through and, uh, lead healthy, happy, productive, balanced, stable lives after your struggles. So I want to, I want to dive in because you shared so much there about, you know, I mean, it sounds like you're just making earth better, which is amazing. And you are, and I want to get a little bit more detailed about how you accomplish the things that you do. Cause one of the conversations you and I had that evening before I flew back home, you were sharing with me some very specific, um, intersectional uh, techniques that you used where you you intersect these people's lives uh, by going to the schools you know you, you get, gather groups of dads together and you give you know you give your your testimony of course that basically normalizes their experiences and says hey look I went through it I'm going through it now I am a dad I I, I grew up in in a home that was you know didn't have both parents and um, and therefore you can too you're not alone in this struggle which I think is amazing I mean normalizing people's experiences is is absolutely the first step to giving them some hope um, but then you you give some very specific uh, techniques on how to go about doing that uh, if you wouldn't mind share share some of the the stuff that you do with these guys that really brings it home to help them uh, I guess you know recover and, and stand on their own two feet and and lift their heads you know and, and in hope well you know one of the uh, the biggest things that we that I've noticed and it was just through um, trial and error really but that I noticed and was one of the sessions where I was at one of the, the local elementary schools with, with some fathers uh, but immediately I realized that step number one if you want to hold a parent responsible make the kid uh, stand up in their face and tell them how they feel because I can stand there all day long and tell you, I can lay the groundwork, right, and say, hey, man, this is, this is what the kids are going through. And that does create a bond. It does create a relationship of trust because you're, 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 you're really laying everything out there. and You're not hiding anything. You're not stepping to them like, oh, I'm better than you. You know, you're really relating. However, uh, my, my biggest weapon is the kid. It's the child. Mm-hmm. Just get the kid in there and uh, let the kid tell them how they feel. And, and normally in our programs, I'll let, I'll, we always start off on a happy note. So, you know, for a dad to see his kid bouncing around a room, eating a donut, drinking some juice, laughing with their peers and things like that. And you get 10, 15 minutes of that. And all of a sudden you get into a conversation and you ask the kid, like, hey, can you tell dad? It's all about accountability. Can you tell dad how it feels not to see him? And then all of a sudden that mood in that room just drops immediately. It's like immediately. And so every parent in the room not only is listening to their kid, they're listening to the anguish that other parents are causing their children. So everybody takes it personal. But it is... Uh, it's the one way to actually break into the emotions of a man because guess what? We don't like to show those. Absolutely. But your kids can get there, mm-hmm. you know? And then once we open them up, now once the emotional wounds are open, then it's a conversation of, okay, I want you guys to, to you know, close your eyes. And I'll do this with the kids sitting there. And I'll close your eyes. And I want you to go back to that time that he didn't show up or that time he beat you. Or that time you, you called and he didn't answer. Or remember that present that you got promised and you never got? Hey, think about that time you just sat in your room for no reason as a young man and you just cried. Hey, think about how many times you told somebody, you're not my father. Think about that. And just give them a moment. 
and you'll just watch the tears flow. Because it is it is heartbreaking uh, for men to go back and revisit those times, but it's so deep rooted and seated in them that if they've allowed it to become part of their everyday nature, and that's why it's so easy for them to abandon their own kids because that hurt just festers and that pain just festers. And I understand if I rip off this wound, it's gonna it's gonna reveal some ugly stuff. Uh, so that's one of the techniques we use. We use the kids to open up the emotional wounds of the fathers. And then once you're in there, you're in there. You know, you just have to really set the tone and let them heal and let them purge uh, that pain out of them. And what I've noticed through doing that is when, even before one session is over with, the way that they even hug their kids before they walk out the room, is, is it, it'll make any tough guy cry. Because it went from, oh, hey, I'm here with Junior, to, no, I need to remain with him. I can't believe I've been letting this child experience the same pain I've been experiencing. Uh, and it really make it personal for them. Uh, and I will ask the kids to, to reconfirm uh, what their parents said. So how did you feel, you know, when the kids are, well, I was really sad that my dad didn't come, but um, sometimes, you know, you have kids saying, well, he's here today, but I won't see my dad for uh, of my next birthday. You'll hear things like that, and it really puts the fathers wow. uh, really on front street. So uh, using the kids as a, as a smart weapon, as a strategic weapon to get the parents to, to hold themselves accountable, and then once you get those emotional wounds open via the children, allow those men to purge. And once they purge, you build kinships, you build bonds because it's a very emotional and vulnerable state that they're in. And so the people that they now entrusted with that part of them, they build a relationship with and they, they start building accountability partners on their own. You don't, even have to, you don't even have to do it. They just do it. Accountability partners are formed. You start seeing dads taking their kids out together, hanging out. You, they, they come to school when they drop them off. They're, they're dressed a little bit better. Uh, they get make sure to get their kids to school early. They start all of a sudden showing up in the principal's office, you know, just asking and checking on the kids, sitting in classrooms. It really gets them going. Um, and so that's step one. Step two is when you have someone who is pushing for it and they're, they're, they're trying to be involved, give them tips and advice. Uh, and it seems more about finances, but it's really not. It's really about showing them that they have an ally. And so, so one of the things I do is show a dad how to entertain a kid for $5 a day. And... You, you can, it's different ways you put it back on people. If you get that guy that's like, yeah, man, even five bucks can sometimes be challenging. I'm like, yeah, do you smoke cigarettes? Well, yeah, we don't buy a pack of cigarettes today. Mm-hmm. Now, what's more important? Your, your, your fix or your kid? Oh, you, you enjoy a little marijuana from time to time? Cool, man. No problem. Don't buy something that week. What is that? 20 bucks? Okay, that's, that's, uh, you know, four days that you got five bucks now. You know, whatever you drink? Okay, cool. Don't have a drink that day or whatever the thing is. And we start eliminating, eliminating those excuses and show them how they can actually entertain their kids, and they become empowered with that. And what we normally see, or I normally see, is that you'll get a dad to go out with 5, 10, 15 bucks to entertain his kid, and the kid will remind the dad it's not about the money. So it's actually setting the kid up to be successful. So that's because that's one of the things that fathers believe. They believe if they can't financially support the kid, then it's easier just to abandon them. And that's been something that's been taught in our communities for a long time. That's why mothers get welfare if the father's not around. Then the moment dad shows up, he's not bringing as much as the welfare and the entire family suffers. So dads have been kind of systematically trained to remove themselves if they're not financially able of giving a kid a certain level of life because they believe the government will do it instead. So they just stay away. But it's, it's teaching them like, no, you can come do this. And then the kids will always remind the parent it's not about the money because the kid understands. You know, you can take an eight, nine-year-old nowadays, man, they really understand what $5 is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they understand it's not much, um, but it's, it's they'll re, they'll remind that because the money will run out. You can only get a couple of cheeseburgers and uh, maybe a couple of bus tickets to the park. 
But what dad started to realize is, you know, my kid was really smiling because of the time that we were together. Not the gifts, not the cheeseburger. You only fed them just so they won't be yelling or hungry all day. But it's the fact that I was there. And they start seeing that time is the investment. So you start shattering all these these beliefs that the government has passed down or uh, that even other people have passed down, or maybe even passed down to yourself. You start realizing that the child just needs you. And so then it reinforces to the dad that I am the value asset. It is not my income or my money. I should be able to feed my child and maybe clothe my child. Cool. But it's not that. It's really I am the value-added asset. And you start seeing dads becoming empowered because they realize that they are the walking value, not what they have in their wallet. And once they realize that, then they become even more and more involved and more and more involved. So those are the first kind of two steps we, we trick them into getting involved. So use the kid as a weapon. Have them help you open up the emotional uh, barriers that are hidden. Help foster the emotional barriers. Uh, let that pain come out. Allow the father to process it. Allow them to build networks with the people that were vulnerable with them. And then teach them some of the tangible assets. And then when you do that, you can start breaking some of their own mental restraints about what they've been fed over the years and over decades to why they should. They're better off just staying away. And once you show them that they are the value added to the kid, then you start seeing the families and a generation start to heal from there. You really um, and and. I was going to say, you're really doing family systems work there. I mean, that's that's what I I went to grad school for that, and you don't need to go to grad school for it. You're literally doing it. That's what we that's what we're taught how to do in therapy, right? You're you're connecting families by turning them toward each other, and forcing intimacy. That's great. That's that's awesome. Well, I mean, um, professional is a very loose title. I mean, I, <laughs> I see some some so-called professionals in my career that, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I'd trust them. But, I mean, what you're doing is, is amazing work. Hey, answer this for me because in my field, we really struggle to get people to attend things like what you just described, you know, groups. How do you get the dads to show up? How do you, how do you connect with them in advertisement and get them to, motivated to commit to something like that? Because that's a pretty scary first step. Here's the trick. The gun is a carrot. Right? So the beautiful thing about being a firearms instructor and, and, and putting out the gun videos and stuff like that is when we do an event, uh, sometimes the dads just, they believe themselves that it's going to be kind of gun-focused, and so they'll show up. Ah. They're really there for the gun. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's they, they're like, oh, it's a gun dude. Like, yeah, come on in here. Walk on in. <laughs> um, and then also using my resources. See, I've noticed that you have a lot of people that do a lot of good things in different ways, right? And so I, I, I've, I've become a, a true fan of using other resources in the community. So if I work with, uh, say, three groups that do various things with children, right? And we, we all are doing great things just in different ways. I've taken it upon myself to reach out to them and say, hey, you know, uh, this is what I do. I see what you do. How can we work together? And then you start using the momentum from everybody to say, hey, we need everybody to show up. Uh, and if they don't show up after that, then I make the, I use the kids to make them feel bad. <laughs> I'll make sure that the, the school sends home pamphlets saying that, Dad, I just want to spend some time with you. You know, because, like, you got to trick the yeah. kids, too. If they get out of class for 30 minutes, the kid wants out of class for 30 minutes. Oh, yeah. So they're like, hey, you, yeah, yeah, I need you to show up. Dad, please. Look, they sent the letter. I just, please. You know, so you kind of use the kids, too. So uh, fellow peers, uh, kids, and the gun. But the gun is the secret. The gun is the secret sauce. It nice, really is. Nice work. It's the secret sauce. It's the carrot. That's awesome. So let's let's uh let's transition a little bit to to where you're um so you do this stuff with the dads um and then okay that's class one that that sounds amazing 
and I'm sure they get an amazing effect out of it. What happens in the follow-ups? How do you sustain this? So the follow-ups, normally, so I work with a couple of different uh, Christian um, therapists, psychologists. So what I normally will do is specialize in families. I will normally set them up through, uh, whether it's fundraising, where we pay the first couple of co-payments. And I don't pawn them off, but at that point I realized that in order for this, everything that's been done to continue, it needs to be, it needs to be, professionally monitored in a way and there might be some pain that needs to come out that I probably couldn't help them really process in a professional manner so we link them up with a professional uh, family therapist to kind of keep that thing going and then I constantly do events Uh, I'll say hey we're having this event at the range or I'm bringing uh, we're doing free family firearms training or hey we're just doing it we just did a barbecue at the park last year for no reason and like everybody's invited Uh, and so we, we try to do things that remind them of community while also making sure that they remain in touch with the professionals that can guide their family for years in the future. I just remain kind of an asset, a resource, and a sounding board if they need me going forward. For the attendance, is this, are you targeting mostly uh, black men, or is this uh, all races? What's the demographic split there? Uh, I'll be honest with you. It started off just focusing on black men because I felt I was a black man. I had a unique black experience, and I was trying to help black people. <laughs> and that was me at... That was me at 16. That's just how I processed it. Uh, but growing up, I realized, you know, early into my 20s, I was like, you know what, man, this is a, this is an American problem. This isn't this a black problem. You know, you, right. white kids go through the same thing. Hispanic kids go through the same thing. Asian kids go through the same thing. So now I just target everybody. I want any and everybody to come out. I think the, the stigma the, the stigma is, um, hey, it's a black dude, so he's only talking to black people. Now, that's just something society has done. Like, I didn't do that. Right. Uh, so we have to kind of break that. But the last class we had in Phoenix... Um, the last thing for the truth that was in Phoenix was all white and Hispanic. It was great. Like, it was only two black people out of uh, almost 40. And so it was, it was good that you can start to see that some people are actually opening up. And we had, you know, the minority in that class was black and uh, Hispanics and uh, whites were the predominant uh, uh, races represented. So that was pretty cool. When when do you uh, like when you go around the country? Who invites you to these to these different towns? Like, what's your connection? How do you how do you do it? Is it through gun ranges or is it through schools or what? Uh, it could be gun ranges. It could be just peers, uh, social media um, followers would be like, "Hey, um, I would love to have you in my city," and then I place responsibility on them. I'm like, "Yeah, okay, this is what I need. I need a building and I need people to talk to. Help me promote it, and I'm on my way." Uh, so that's worked several times. Other times it's uh, uh, peers. Sometimes it is through. Now my wife is a, a school uh, administrator, so sometimes it's reaching out to her and and having her network uh, help me out and get out there. Uh, because of my work in law enforcement, I am uh, friendly with several police agencies throughout the country. So uh, just like I was in Riverside, California, it was a, a police associate of mine who ran and had been out there dealing with law enforcement. So uh, he brought me out there, and I spoke to law enforcement about the the dealings or the. The, the true issues with community and why the community is responding to them in certain ways and trying to help them fix that relationship. So it's all kind of different angles and viewpoints from different people. It could be law enforcement connections, uh, professional connections, uh, peer connections, social media. Um, I don't have a, scene, uh, a a flow of resources in one market. I kind of want that, but I don't. So I'm just constantly putting pressure on everybody to get me out there. And they fund your uh, flight and hotel and meals and stuff, or are you just dipping in your own pocket, or how's that, how's that covered? Sounds expensive. Uh, depend, depends on the organization. Um, uh, depends on our situation. But I will tell you, for the first ugh, uh, 10 years of doing this, this is all 100% me. So I've spent, you know, I'm pretty sure well over six figures uh, doing this. It's, um, 
Um, now it is getting to the point to where, um, you know, I'm asking people like, hey, you know, let's fundraise. So I do have a, a GoFundMe. So I ask people, if nothing else, just help drive uh, money to the GoFundMe. If your community doesn't have any money to bring me out, at least I can fundraise that way. Um, and But either way, I'm going to show up. If I make a commitment, I'll show up. I try to do it through fundraising, through donations. We are not a profit organization. So we're trying to get more and more people to just to help us out so it can be true grassroots. But if an organization has money, and I know that, I will ask them to put the bill. And I'm asking that because our listening audience is really wide and um, diverse and quite varied geographically. And I, I will always want to be able to get people the opportunity to have you out, you know, if, if they choose to. I mean, I, I'm already deciding we need to bring you to Reno because I can plug you in with several different groups that could definitely stand to hear that message. Um, I'm just my head is spinning right now, actually, and in a good way. <laughs> but uh, oh, that's good. Um, yeah, so, uh, all right. So aiming for the truth is what we've been discussing. How it, does that have its own website? I can't remember. Is it Facebook or what's aiming for the uh, truth? No, aiming they, for the truth is the, pretty much the, the best advertisement for it right now is just on the, uh, GoFundMe. So GoFundMe forward slash aiming for the truth. And you can also just type aiming for the truth in, in YouTube and see a lot of videos explaining it. Um, NRA did a, did a pretty good high polish segment on it about eight minutes long where they came and documented one of the events. So there are tons of videos out there on YouTube and uh, also the GoFundMe page. The only reason it doesn't have its own dedicated website is because I'm pretty sure you know websites aren't cheap to do yeah. right. And it's, it's I mean, it's, the Aiming for the Truth has been up for three years. I think it's made just shy of $4,000 in three years. So um, we just don't have the funds to do it. Yeah. Uh, so if you feel like kicking down, uh, do it because Kevin uses that money for uh, good. I want to hover for a second on the on the whole violence concept because you touched on that earlier that um, rather than focusing on the tool, uh, and I'm not a big fan of the adjective that precedes a thing. Like, So we talk about justice. I think justice should be justice. Um, but then we get into uh, criminal justice and social justice and environmental justice, and you know, all of a sudden everything has a different adjective, and we get these uh, this non-exhaustive list of uh, specific types of justices or violences. You know, you got uh, domestic violence and sexual violence and firearm violence and, and all sorts of things, right? So you know, racial violence. And, and I want to spend some time here because I really appreciate that you've pulled the, the lens back and said violence is what needs to be addressed. And I've got some, some opinions about this because it's what I do for a living. But I want to hear your idea on how you conceptualize violence its origins, and I mean really, really broadly, because you know the listening audience is going to specify it in their own ears just by listening, um, and how we go about solving it. You've you've obviously got one avenue, uh, and there are many others, but help help the listening audience understand your perspective on what violence is and um, and how we how we tackle it. Uh, violence, in, in my in the overall kind of the macro view, violence is uncontrolled nature. Right, so. Um, it is natural for, for us as humans to um, hurt things. I mean, we will. We'll, we'll kill for our meat, right? No, but that's survival. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we will hurt each other, but it's uncontrolled. It's not, it's not natural to do that thing. Um, so I believe now when you look at how violence is promoted in the country, violence is almost dependent on where you are. I mean, you could say this is from military service all the way down to a pick a city. Um, violence is almost like a strike of violence at this point. It's, it's kind of like, oh, you resorted to violent measures, then you are the man or you are the woman. So I think violence is, and 
not only is it uncontrolled nature, it's also kind of like a badge of honor, I should say. It's like something you need to validate your existence now. So people resort to it so easy because it is the thing that they have. Um, I also like to say that people resort to violence, and I have this kind of philosophy. Um, and it, it kind of ties into guns, but it's still dealing with violence overall. It could be a knife, brick, bad car, whatever. Um, I, I call it the, the black powder powder syndrome. So the black powder power, like gun propelling, gun powder just in the shell case. Black powder power, and what is that? Well, think about it. Every single human being, despite who they are, innately wants to be respected. They want their opinion to be valued. They want it to be treated fairly. Like, you're just kind of just born with that. Like, you want that. Well, with the lack of education around this country, uh, and with the, the, the devices that are used for division around this country, so you don't have a lot of people that feel like their voices are valued or that they can articulate the fact that they should be valued or respected in a certain way. So whether it's, oh, I've been taught that this whole side of the country sucks, uh, and then when I go talk to them, they don't listen to me, so that ticks me off. Whether it's the kid in school that can't get the cool kid to talk to him and interact with him, he wants to be valued, that ticks him off. Whether it's the guy that tries to go in and get a job, and because he doesn't know how to articulate himself, people don't respect him. Maybe he didn't graduate from high school, so he's ticked off because nobody respects him. You try to have a conversation with someone in the street, and they're using words you don't understand, and you know they look back at you and laugh when you don't get it. You miss, even when you misspell something on social media now, People are reminding you how dumb you are. Like, everybody is always trying to devalue the person. Well, that goes against what we want naturally. So when individuals pick up something, right? So an example would be this, and it's just one of many. I have went around, and I have tried to ask this employer for a position for X amount of years. And they always laugh at me. You know, I'm never good enough. I'll never get the position. I got my friends in my neighborhood reinforcing that. And so I can't get the things that I would get because I want to work hard. I, I want to be respected and I want to do right. Well, I asked you for something paying me 15 bucks an hour. I can't get it out of you. All right. I asked you for your respect. I can't get it out of you. But if I pick up something that you understand can cause harm and I threaten you with it, well, you'll give me everything in your pocket. Oh, so now you'll give me money. Oh, now I'm served. Oh, now you're looking at me with respect. Oh, now you value what I have to say because you understand there's an immediate consequence if you don't. Oh, so violence will make you conform to what I naturally want. Hmm. Okay, cool. I'm going to resort to violence to get what I want out of you because I innately want that. I desire that. And when people don't get it and they see that violence makes others conform, they'll resort to it as a means to feed their internal desires. And that's why I think kind of a big macro level where the issues are coming from. Um, so that's how I kind of feel about it. So we can take that and apply it to things like, you know, you, you hear people saying, well, words are violence. No, that's stupid. Um, but they, they can be because if you pick up nasty words and use them against somebody to get their respect or their attention, it's, it's valid. It's legit. That actually works. When I, when I mock somebody or when I – um, when I pester them to the point that they, I, I uh, push them into responding, even though they may not want to respond, that's a, that's a form of leveraging violence. So why is this bad? I mean, I'm going to pretend that we don't already inherently know that it's bad. <laughs> why is this bad? And then how do we cure it? Because we're not going to stop people from picking up uh, an object or you know some other tool to leverage violence to get their respect. How do, how do we... 
change the narrative, change the culture, so that, that we're not perpetrating violence upon each other anymore. I think that, and it might sound a little soft, but it's just something we should all uh, do. I think that we need to remind our fellow man about their value, about who they are, about Amen. how special they can be. Amen. About how, you know, and, and that's what we need to do. So instead of mocking the guy that misspells words all the time, pull him to the side. Like, hey, man, I mean, you know, I've noticed this. You know, can I help you? Uh, hey, there's this, this guy over here that, you know, I see that he's, you know, not making, you know, great wages and he's struggling. Instead of mocking him or you pulling up a year, you know, $80,000 car, uh, just like, oh, yeah, one day you'll, you'll be here. Ask him, hey, what are you trying out? Like, spend a few minutes and just help them invest in themselves. Uh, sometimes, you know, some things that we take for granted can be life-changing for another individual, right? If you just simply say, hey, um, just to let you know, I was driving by the local church, and they're having a, a men's group uh, there today. And I, I see that, man, you just haven't been looking happy lately. Which, let's go to the men's group together. Like, in that moment to you just might be an hour and a half out of your day hanging out at a church, but to that individual, you could have just changed their lives. So instead of mocking or making fun or ignoring your fellow man, spend a few minutes a week even and just give back and help them understand uh, that they can achieve higher value levels in their life. And if we can all do that, if we took 300 million people and we were all focused on doing that in this country, then we could probably start knocking down violence, you know, uh, you know, a few hundred people at a time just because we're reminding them how valuable and special they are. And once you build a relationship with somebody, you know, now granted, we can get into the whole domestic situations and stuff, but realistically, once you build a relationship with someone based off camaraderie and respect, the likelihood of them never coming to hurt you is going to be very low. So if we can just do that across the board, I think that'll fix a lot of mankind to each other. I agree. Adding value to people. And if you can't add value, noticing the value that somebody already possesses, right? Because we all inherently possess value. So if we can just point that out to one another, I think that's a great, very, very simple, practical, everyday solution that literally everybody listening can can do. We can do that everywhere. Workplace, home environment, uh, and then even strangers. Uh, I love that. Thank you for that. That's a, that's a really cool perspective. Uh, how are you doing on time? Do you, you have 15 or 20 more minutes? So I want to shift gears because you do you really brought some illumination to to me when we were chatting about race relations in America, and it was through the context of this notion that all gun control is racist, and that was something that I'd like maybe vaguely heard at some point in my life, um, but then you really brought it home. And you kicked it off by telling me about Black Wall Street, but there's other things that, that have gone on historically in America that we don't get taught in history books. Um, that was a real eye-opener for me, Black Wall Street. I've never heard about that before. And, um, and so I want you to share that with the listening audience because ever since then I've gone to many people in my life. I'm like, hey, have you ever heard of Black Wall Street? And I just get, you know, like trout-faced blank stares. <laughs> and uh, I was like, you gotta, you got to listen to Katie talk about this. Um, and of course, you're not in my hip pocket, so I can't. But now, if you put it on the podcast, I can. Um, but then I also want you to share some of the other stories that are really impactful that um, I guess undergird what we know about race relations today in America that maybe folks haven't heard about simply because they've been washed from the texts or whatever, uh, you know, overlooked, ignored. Um, I, I'm just going to pause there and let you start talking because this is really fascinating. Okay, no, no problem. So, um, as far as race goes in this country, especially when it comes to that, like all gun control is racist. I'll start there. It, it, a lot of a lot of people say it, 
because it's a med- an immediate shield against gun control, right? You just throw out the word racism, it would just stop. Yeah, it you know, has like, a chilling okay, effect, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, what do I do? Am I racist now? So they just stop. But it's deeper than that. It's not just a phrase. It really is. So, uh, and I'll make it brief. When you go back to the history of this country, um, slave codes, if you will, uh, they go by different names, slave codes, black codes, um, depending on what part of the, the, the colonies at the time you were in. Uh, these were codes that were written, uh, various codes that cover various things that governed uh, slaves, all right? Uh, not Native Americans, they governed, they governed slaves. The slaves uh, had to adhere to these different rules. When it comes to firearms, the slave codes were very clear that if a, if a black was caught with anything that could be used as a weapon outside of their work, like if you're working in a field, that's acceptable. But if you're caught in a non-working manner, with anything that can be used or can misconstrued as a weapon, a white person could kill you on the spot and be perfectly justified in doing so. You were not allowed to have anything. And they used, in one of the laws, it actually used a cane as a reference. Like, you couldn't have a cane. <laughs> so, because um, it could be used as a weapon, and, you know, it's one object. So they, they would kill you for having it if you couldn't explain why you had it. So when, when gun control, when things expanded and the country started to evolve, so you even get to 1776 when, you know, we had the big war and here we are, America fought from its freedom. Now we're actually a country instead of a bunch of colonies. Well, a lot of people with 1776, when you look in the gun community, which is great. I'm not demeaning this. I'm just bringing out the facts. Uh, 1776 is awesome. Uh, when you look at it from a historical basis, like we wouldn't be able to have this podcast right now if things were different. Right. right? But it's, uh, it's to be valued. However, in 1776, America did indeed gain its freedom. We started a big piece of paper, kind of an important thing in Philly, and everything's great. Well, even today, everybody celebrates 1776, and that is fine, but they just don't celebrate or understand the things that surround it. So in 1776, America was free from Britain, but I still was not free from America. Mm-hmm. Gun control was amplified. So when America got its freedom and we got we got the Constitution and then we had Amendment 2 or, or the Second Amendment, whatever you feel comfortable with, uh, that was still – that was written for white men. And you could argue maybe women, but definitely white men, uh, but not, not, not black people at all. It was not meant for us. Um, so when you look at the different things like the Army-Navy laws and Jim Crow and stuff like that, it, they always have restrictions on us owning firearms. Uh, different slaves wrote, uh, different states wrote different things. If you take um, the state of Tennessee, I believe it was 1865, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Tennessee ratified its state constitution to, and I'm paraphrasing at this point, that the right to keep and bear arms is for all three men. It ratified the state constitution in 1865 to say the right to keep and bear arms is for all white men. Like they had to add that in just to be clear because the, the freedom of guns was not for white people. Hmm. So, when you when you look at the laws that were that were put in the books, and you look at those things, then it is it is fundamentally factual that gun control was meant for blacks, thus and for evil intent, and thus racism, evil intent, oppressing the people. Gun control is racist, and it is at its roots. It truly is. Uh, even when you fast forward to some of the other minute uh, gun policies, like carry permits and training. Well, if you look at a impoverished area where a family might be negative in their disposable income, but in order for them to survive in this area, they want a firearm. Well, you don't make education and information easy for them, like take St. Louis, for example. 
uh, fortunately, a beautiful city, but a very violent city. Okay, number one in murder for like the last six, seven years running per capita. All right, um, there is not a gun range in St. Louis City. Hasn't been in years. Well, where do people go get their information and education about gun rights and gun laws? When they're living in these areas, they want to know how to protect themselves. Well, where do they go get the education? You took the education from them. They're not allowed to go seek it out. Then you charge them permit fees for their constitutional right. A permit fee in a suburban area where, say, the average home income between two adults is 120000 But when you come down to these areas, that same income might be 24000 right? So that extra couple of hundred bucks for a constitutional right of theirs hurts. And then that's not including the fact that they'll have to go out, find a trainer, and pay the trainer. So now you, and then they got to buy a firearm. So that, you know, let's call it $800 turnaround time could be two to three years worth of savings for a lot of families. Now, what can happen to someone in two or three years while they're living in one of the most violent cities in the country? Lots. Right? Yeah. So it is a way to keep people systematically oppressed. And, uh, and the gun, all the permits and the restrictions these states are putting down are all forms of gun control. So when I, when I use, when I use like Wall Street, for an example, uh, I'll, you know, get a crowd all hyped up. I've done this a couple of times. I just recently did it in Washington, D.C. And, you know, everybody respects and yells to the top of their lungs about 1776. My God, that is awesome. That is cool. Uh, but we have to understand that we aren't helping defeat the root issues of gun control because, when I say 1921, everybody goes quiet, which is expected. That's cool. Now it's time to educate. Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, was essentially a suburb of the city of Tulsa. It was a sector of it. Um, Well-established. You know, back then, segregation was still a really, really big thing. So this black community built up their own community. It was very successful. There were a lot of these pocket communities around the country. But this one was just really a, a shining uh, beacon. Uh, schools. Uh, lawyers, doctors' offices, hospitals, the whole nine yards. It was it was uh, it was rumored that it took six months for one dollar to escape that economy because it was that tight. And the neighboring towns and the neighboring suburbs and everything were jealous of Black Wall Street. Long story short, a black shoe shiner is working in a in a building. He gets on an elevator. Uh, he accidentally bumps into the young white woman who's the elevator operator. Uh, he gets off running. She's screaming bloody murder. The the police go arrest him. The townspeople, which they were still lynching a lot of people back then, the townspeople go, we're going to take them out to jail and lynch them. So the black uh, gentleman from Black Wall Street stood in front of the police station and said, we'll have our lawyers fight the case, but you are not going to kill them. All right? And so they wanted justice. Well, because of the Army-Navy laws that kind of bled over from Tennessee into Oklahoma, which essentially stated that black people were not allowed to own handguns. You might be able to own a shotgun, maybe a rifle. We'll tell you what type, because you might have to go hunt. You might have to go do things like that. Uh, but you were not allowed to own handguns, and that was during the Army Navy laws. Blair was from Tennessee, part of Jim Crow. So a white gentleman, uh, well, gentleman, I use that word loosely in this case, uh, walked up to one of the guys standing out front, and this is where history gets a little blurry, but it's very clear that the white guy um, looked at the gentleman who had a long gun, and he also had uh, a handgun tucked in his waistband up front, appendix style. And he looked at him and said, hey, N-word, what are you doing with that gun? Looking at the handgun because blacks weren't supposed to have handguns. Well, the gentleman in Black Wall Street had enough money to circumvent the laws. They just, they had the money. And so a few of them did have handguns. Uh, however, the, the white guy tried to take the, the handgun from the black guy. A shot went off. And that's, we don't know how the shot happened, but the shot did go off. 
the two groups started shooting at each other. They both went their separate ways. Uh, you would think at that time it's time for the police to go investigate, lock people up accordingly. No, that's not what happened at all. The surrounding communities, with the help of the local police and the state police, emerged from the one uh, square mile radius of Black Wall Street and in 24 hours eradicated it. Shot everybody, killed everybody, burnt it to the ground, took it off the face of the earth. Um, when the National Guard finally showed up, they kind of stood by for a second. They disarmed all the white people, escorted them back home because they were still looting and raping and pillaging everything in Black Wall Street. Even by the time somebody, now you gotta remember, this is 1921. Imagine how long it took to get word to the National Guard for them to assemble and them to come there, right? This is not like today where we can send a text message. So they were still pillaging and, and, and rummaging through the area looking for more victims. But when National Guard gets there, they're like, okay, guys, look, you gotta go home. So they escort all the white people home, give them their guns back. They take their guns, escort them home, and give them their guns right back. Right? All right, Jim, you're in your house. Here's your gun. They go and they arrest all the blacks. They arrest them. And they put them in an internment camp. So a lot of people say, oh, the first internment camps in this country were the Japanese Americans. Very unfortunate, but not true. It was actually black Americans right in Oklahoma. They put them in internment camps. And the only way that you can leave that internment camp is if you have one of the white store owners who now have more business because the businesses in that community were gone, only way you can leave that internment camp is to have one of the white employers come say you were their laborer for the day. But you weren't really allowed to collect money because you had nothing to do with your money. So if you work for free, what are you? Slave. So they, they're your slave. So that's what they had them doing for them to help service and, and uh, get their ears right. And then the local legislator, which is why I don't do politics, the local legislation wrote city ordinance and city codes, like the fire code was ridiculous to build a new building. Insurance requirements were just something that people couldn't afford. So they just made it impossible for them to rebuild Black Wall Street. Um, and so it, it was nicknamed America's Black Eye. And unfortunately, it wasn't the only incident of this kind, but it was one of those um, that, that's more noted, if anything, in history. So at that point in time, you had white America converge on a black town wipe it off the face of the earth and at the end of the day say oops it's our little black eye let's not talk about it so it doesn't get taught in uh school um even the first bombs being dropped you can still see the grainy uh image of a state police plane dropping kerosene bombs on google on black wall street right so when people say oh was the, the first bombs dropped in the sky attacking america was pearl harbor unfortunate incident factually not true it was in 1921 in tulsa Oklahoma, and it was done by the government via the state police wow yeah, so um, we have to understand when people are talking about restricting people's gun rights, I'm not I'm not the guy out there with the Mona Lay flag yet on 1776. I'm telling you, Black Wall Street, the last survivor of Black Wall Street just died in 2017. And that's what people have to realize. That was recent. It wasn't that long ago. It was not even 100 years ago. She just died in 2017. Um, and, and even when you fast forward and you look at some of the gun laws, Look at Jim Crow laws, right? And, and this is even foreseen, uh, going past guns, but Jim Crow laws, of course, included gun restrictions. But you look at Jim Crow laws and every all the evil stuff that it, it said was okay. A lot of people are like, hey, guys, well, look, you got to just get over that, all right? It was a long time ago. Really? Was that a long time ago? It was kind of funny because Jim Crow technically, by law, wasn't written out until 1965. My mother was born in 1964. So you really mean to tell me it was that long ago? And mind you, my mom birthed at 13. She birthed me at 13. So I was I was born when Jim Crow was still floating around. It was just legally not recognized. But as we say with gun laws, you can't 
legislate evil. So even though you wrote it out of law, the evil wasn't going. So I still felt the ramifications of Jim Crow. And so when people say, get over it, get over what? That wasn't even a generation ago. What is some? Of, what are some examples of what you felt and, and observed in your own life? Help help people like me to understand that who are born in you know white bread Reno Nevada <laughs> don't don't have yeah. that type of experience. Well, you know, one thing was um, I would go to this. So Union Station was uh, it's every every big city has a Union Station, right? So our Union Station was. Uh, the place to be, right? You know, it was expensive. That's crap. So I did a lot of window shopping, but it was the place to be. Uh, but I'm a, you know, 12, 13 year old kid. I go down to Union Station, and at the time, even though it's in the middle of the city, predominantly it was a, it was a, a, a area that whites went because that's just who could afford it. And I would go if I walked past a store and looked at something for too long. Uh, you would have a representative of the store come out and tell me to move it along. I've been told that I can't afford things in the store. I have been asked by security, what am I doing here when I'm sitting on a bench eating? Uh, I have been uh, escorted out of establishments uh, because I thought I was thought to be uh, stealing uh, just from showing up. I was told that uh, with certain restaurants that clearly, especially now that I'm older, I'm like, you guys can have no stupid reservation policy. I was, oh, you can't eat here unless you have a reservation. Oh, well, can I make a reservation? No. Like, so you really, you step back, you really start paying attention to it. Uh, and, and so it was a lot of restriction. Now, they couldn't legally tell. You couldn't put up a sign and say no colors allowed, right? But you can use a sign that says we, we have the right to refuse service to anyone. Mm. See how things kind of – and then it's about the intent of the individual, right? So if I'm, a, if I'm somebody that was born in Jim Crow law, say in the 60s, and in 1985 I'm 38 years old, 40 years old, and that's ingrained in me, well, yeah, I'm going to treat the little black kid that comes and wants to eat in my nice restaurant kind of mean. But I can't put up a sign that says no colors allowed because they'll find us for that. Oh, the city might, you know, shut us down. But I can't put up a sign that says we have the right to refuse service to anyone. And then when I look at you, guess who I'm refusing service to today? You still seeing that today? Uh, not as much. So you, I've only seen it um, on the news. I've definitely, uh, now I've heard other stories, but I'm going to get my own account. I haven't seen it much uh, recently, last uh, 10 or 15 years, but I will give you a prominent example how I was, I was still relevant. Uh, but I, I looked at the news a couple of times, and there were different gun owners, not gun owners, I'm sorry, store owners uh, around the country. I forget what the last one I was read about, but this guy put up a sign on his door and said, um, uh, Negroes are not allowed in my establishment. I forget what that guy, it was like a bar. Uh, and it was a big deal in a small town. Uh, but he was like, yeah, he doesn't want Negroes. Then he went to expand it. I don't want Negroes or Spanish people in here either. Like, he just kept expanding it. And there are a few examples of that around the country. Um, the other the other thing that uh, we look at with the way that uh, black communities are policed, and a lot of people like to say, well, it's 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 false. It's not it's not true. Statistically, white men are, you know, more victimized than black. Now, look, I'm not a victim of anything. I'll tell people that in a heartbeat. I'm a conqueror. I don't do victim mentality. Uh, but one thing that we have to look at is facts. Like, sure, there are more white individuals in this country than are blacks. There's a reason why we're the minority. Duh. So, yes, stats are always going to favor. Then you start breaking it down to percentages. But I always say numbers, uh, men and women uh, lie. Numbers don't. Stats depends on how they feel that day. <laughs> stats, can, just, stats can just do whatever they want to do, right? So, but when you look at it, there is there is some imbalance. I, was, I worked for a PD for ten years. I was in that facility. I understand what happened. I saw it firsthand. Um, now, are people going to lie? They're going to tell fake stories. Yep, that happens all uh, far too often. But at the same time, there is an imbalance. Could you imagine 
And I'm going to say this to you, and it might be shocking to you. Could you imagine getting pulled over while pumping gas? Uh, that sounds impossible because typically gas pumps are stationary. Mm-hmm. And normally your car is stationary while the gas is being pumped into the vehicle and stuff like yeah, that. So yeah, you're normally typically. not moving. But, so how do you get pulled? How do you get stopped while pumping gas? I'll tell you an interesting story. I was with uh, four of my friends. Now, look, we're, we're, we're kids. I was uh, now early 23, 24 years old. I got this brand spank new car. I got nice paint on it, big rims on it. We're having a good time. We're cruising the, the area looking for looking for cute girls. That's what we're doing, right? And I pull over to the gas station because I needed some gas to keep looking for the cute girls. And there was a car full of cute girls that happened to be at the gas station. Well, these are the days where you have to go in and pay for your gas and come back outside and go back in and get your change. So my friends immediately get off the car and they see the girls. I'm like, all right, I'm going to pay for the gas. Uh, and so I go in. My friends are already over at the vehicle talking to the girls, so they're not even near my car. I am standing in line. I pay for my gas. I look back out of my car, and as I'm walking to it, there's a squad car behind my vehicle with the cherries on it. I'm like, okay, that's, that's interesting. Now, I'm working at the police department at this time, but I'm not, I'm not going to say that. So I just kind of walked back up to my car, and the officer is like, hey, whose car is this? He's like, it's mine. Yeah, everything okay? Well, yeah, you got your license and registration? Sure. Showed it to him. Well, you need to explain to me what you're doing. I said, no, I don't. And him still not knowing I'm a department employee. I said, no, I don't, sir. I was kind enough to cooperate to his point. No, I don't. Well, I want to know why it's five of you... Uh, I'm going to say Negroes, but that's not the N-word he used. Hmm. You have to explain to me why there's five of you in this car. And I said, because the seat's five. Because <laughs> it, now I'm being a smart ass, right? I'm like, well, it seat's five. He's like, well, it shouldn't, there shouldn't be more than three of you in a car at a time. So, sir, if I can have as many people legally in this car as I want to, as long as everybody can wear their safety belt, then they can be in the vehicle. The vehicle legally seats five individuals. I have enough restraints in the car for five people to be safe. I will transport five people in this vehicle at my will. Oh, uh, well, yeah, all right, we're going to see about that. So he starts to get on his radio and call for backup. And it was at that time, I said, okay, well, now, because I'm understanding that any time you're going you're, you're gonna to be involved with law enforcement, when you're off duty, you have to let your sergeant know. So I was like, hey, uh, while you're doing that, please tell them uh, my DSN is blah, 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 and they can alert Sergeant so-and-so and so that I'm having this interaction with you. Counselor call. Uh-huh. How come you didn't say that? I said, I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to. Now, why did you stop me? And his, his exact words to me, you know, like I know, when there's more than three of you in a car, somebody's going to get killed. And I didn't know if they were even going to rape those girls. So this is a police department employee telling this to another police department employee. And here's the crazy thing about it. Not only did he stereotype us, not only did he pull me over while I was pumping gas, not only did all those crazy things happen, he was black. Wow. So, so it was, it's more of a systematic thing than it is really a race thing. It was more of a systematic thing. So when people say that those imbalances don't exist, they're, they're absolutely wrong. They absolutely do exist. Um, but yeah, so it's, America, we have to start paying attention to some things um, and, and really get on board with some of the imbalances that are happening. And I'm pretty sure, look, if I was to talk, I'm pretty sure black and brown communities have the same stories. I'm pretty sure they're very similar. Um, but we have to get, we have to get um, used to really listening to those stories in a, in a different way. Um, 
And there was something else you asked me, and I think I went off on a tangent. I forgot. Well, I don't remember, but what I was going to ask is your opinion of this new hot trend uh, regarding what's called implicit bias, and uh, we're trying to train biases out of people, and psychologically, we just know that's factually untrue. There's there's no way to train out an implicit bias. All you can do is uh, help people understand and acculturate. Uh, there's no there's no scientific study that says that you can you know train out somebody's bias, but um, but you can help educate them and and help them grow and and develop. What you've just described sounds like an implicit systemic bias, and uh, you know we we have various theories about where it originates. But what's the solution other than just getting to know each other better and loving on each other and pointing out each other's value to reference earlier in the conversation? Um, what 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 ideas do you have? you can't get rid of bias and you're not going to get rid of prejudice how do you do that right like uh people form those things from what they watch on tv what they see on social media Mm -hmm. one person that wears the color purple oh so now that that person that wears purple did it everybody that wears purple did it like you're not really ever going to be able to to get that out what i what what i had to force myself to do if i'm being very honest when i was forced for my work to start going into areas of people that didn't look like me. Like, one of my favorite places to go to this day is a trailer park. Sounds weird. <laughs> they are, like, my favorite spots to go in. Right? But when I first went into a trailer park, I had to conquer that bias. And I would advise anybody to do the same thing in your everyday life. I had to realize, walking in, that these are humans. And the same way somebody's told them something about me, the same way I've been told things about them, we just believe whatever we're told is the truth, and everybody else is uh, being fed lies. That's not the case. That's, that's like the... The three-way mirror. That's just really not the case. No, you could be getting fed the same lies that they're being fed. you got to stop believing everything you hear is God's gospel. It's not. So I had to realize, like, yo, you know what? People have, have told them these things about you. People have told them these things about you. While I'm here to talk to them, to work with them, to build a relationship, then I need to be careful about reinforcing their bias. Um, but I, I do want to change it, and I need to be careful about how I'm looking at them because I don't want to project things upon them that they don't deserve. And just understanding that and having a 15-second conversation with myself before I walk into the environment, it's awesome. Because I actually, you actually allow your mind to listen to people, right? Because you're not, you're not oh, no, that, that's totally not true. Uh, no, I've been told this about you. No, you just free your mind and you allow, you allow yourself to really hear people. And once you see that the redneck is just like the dude in the hood, it's, it's easy, it's like, oh, I tell people all the time, oh, you're just a white meat. <laughs> like, there, it's easy to kind of let that go. If you're going to walk into any environment, whether it's a racial environment or a cultural difference or uh, even a professional difference, like when I walk into rooms with people that are, that are anti-gun, which I do quite often, and when I walk into rooms with people that are anti-gun, social media and a lot of the different things that if you were pro-gun, that you touch, that you feed into, will tell you that they're going to be loud, uh, they're adults, but they're going to act like, uh, you know, ignorant children. They're just going to yell words at you. They're going to call you a child murderer. All these things you're prepared to walk into, so you're immediately on the defensive. But then I have to stop myself and say, remember who you're here representing, yourself, your family, the gun community, or whatever else you stand for. And your job is to present information in a factual way and not to be on the attack. So I'm able to eliminate my bias because if I feed into it, then I'm going to be on the attack. So I just calm that bias down. I kind of smother it. And I walk into the room, and I guess what? Nine times out of ten, that is nowhere near the reaction I get. 
Uh, but I also am not feeding into their bias about I'm going to come in there with a certain shirt on, you know, open carrying my rifle and stuff like that. And since I'm not reinforcing their bias and I'm not giving them anything to eat off of, they are also forced to listen to me. You got two people that are forced to listen to each other. I think you have some great conversation. So that's my that's my uh, take on it. I think that's good feedback for anybody listening who would ever have an interaction with um, a human because <laughs> we all have our biases and we tend to gravitate toward the ones that are dangled in front of us through common media like race and uh, I guess uh, socioeconomic disparities and political disparities. And But we forget about um, clothing. We forget about neighborhoods. We forget about all sorts of other cultural things. And, and my profession has been put on pins and needles, I think largely through academia, uh, trying to tell us that we need to be quote-unquote competent in all cultures, which simply isn't possible because there's, again, an, an, an infinite list of cultural possibilities it could present in someone's life or in a session. Um, so, again, I, I tend to, like you, retreat to, well, human being. What is common among human beings? Uh, emotions are common. Thinking is common. Love is common. Uh, so I think if you if you go to that that simple baseline, uh, then then you have a lot better conversations. And you, and of course you got to check your own biases too. Many of which are blind spots, and you can't even check blind spots if you don't know that they're there because they're blind by definition. So I, I really appreciate that perspective because mostly because it validates what I already believe, which I love hearing people do. Uh, but also it's a it's neat to hear it from a different person's mouth because uh, I think people get tired of hearing my voice. Um, we are we are way over an hour now, um, given because I'm going to put an intro on this thing too, and it's going to be a couple minutes long. But uh, one thing I, you, you mentioned you you went and saw the movie Harriet. Um, how was it, and how did the trip go? Uh, well, the trip with the kids is tomorrow. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was already done. Uh, no, I went and saw it. You know, like, I wanted to already know what they're going to, you know, see and stuff like that. Uh, but no, the trip with the kids is tomorrow. Uh, we'll be up bright and early getting them out there. Um, but no, I went and saw the movie myself uh, about a week after it came out. And, you know, it was it was overall, now, I'm a, I'm a critic. It was like when you go watch a movie of something you know a decent amount about. Like, I, I know oh, you do. That's, <laughs> that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's, it was good. And it, like if, you've, if you never knew about her story, it'll, it'll be phenomenal, right? Because it, 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 everything you see is new and fresh. It'll be phenomenal. Uh, the, my one biggest complaint, and maybe I'm just being greedy, is that there were other historical figures that I could tell like they were standing in the room. I'm like, that's a person you should talk about, but they never did, right? It's just like uh, like a small cameo, and then they, they disappeared the rest of the movie. I'm like, oh, that person is instrumental. <laughs> you know, bring yeah. them back in here. Uh, but the movie wanted to be hyper-focused on Harriet, which I can respect. Um, but, it, it, you know, my biggest complaint, my biggest complaint, it was a good movie. I give it like a B plus. My biggest complaint was the fact that they portrayed Harriet Tubman as being too soft, and I don't like that. Mm, yeah, because she, she was a badass. Yes, she was. Five foot nothing, terror. And they portrayed her as being, uh, and they used the Christian religion to portray her as being soft. And I don't like that. I didn't like the way that religion was used to make her not be who she really was. I wanted to see the real Harriet. Uh, like, if you if you do any Googling on Harriet, look at that woman's face and tell me that she wouldn't yeah. shoot you. Yeah. And Harriet didn't shoot anybody in that entire movie. That's just not factually true. <laughs> so, uh, um, 
it's just one of those things where it's like, all right, guys, you kind of, you see, you know, there wasn't a lot of gut-wrenching truth in this movie, but eh, it's a movie. So you uh, you gave that a B plus after you said it was really really good. Um, what do you give an A plus to? What's what's uh, Kevin Dixie's uh, top end favorite movie of all time or f- top three or five? Oh man, um, I got to go back to my, my childhood. I'm gonna tell you, uh, number one favorite movie of all time, the original RoboCop. Love it. Oh, that is... <laughs> oh man, I did I, not I, I see that coming. Movies. certainly will just because you recommended it oh oh, i'm sorry action movie i'll throw one of those in there i know robocop technically is but my favorite action movie of all time is going to be uh uh blood sport oh yeah good one van damme right oh yeah yeah thanks for your time man i really appreciate it i want to make sure that you get uh proper coverage on this too um so how can people reach you instagram twitter website i know you're the real noc but there's different uh spellings and underscores and that kind of thing uh yeah so on uh instagram if there is a platform i'm most active under it it's going to be ig uh, so instagram is the real noc which stands for no other choice the real underscore noc if you type in the real NLC for Facebook, um, it'll it'll come right up. You can also type in the real NLC for YouTube, and the videos will come right up. Uh, and you can type in Kevin Dixie, it's D as in dog, I-X-I-E. On any of your engines, it'll come right up. So if, even if you forget the real NLC, if you just type in my name, it'll come right up. Uh, Google is a great place to pop my name into to see a lot of stuff. And you can go to NoOtherChoice.net. I will forewarn you, the website is a little outdated. That is getting redone in the month of December. It's my Christmas gift to myself, but um, NoOtherChoice.net. And if you want to reach out, uh, if you want to, especially if you want to donate, uh, it would greatly be appreciated. That's GoFundMe uh, slash Aiming for the Truth. That's GoFundMe.com slash Aiming for the Truth. And if you want to shoot us an email, you can just shoot an email over to AimingForTheTruth at gmail.com. I appreciate you like no other. This has been super educational and really encouraging. And we got to get you out to Reno, so that, mostly so we can hang out and you can meet my family, but <laughs> also so uh, you can give me some training. Okay, it's just about me, um, but but also to to do some training. I, I would love to to connect you with a couple groups here and um, maybe do some classes for some parents. Um, I think that'd be really great. So. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Katie. I, I really, I love you much. Um, I'm really glad we met a couple months ago, and um, I look forward to all that's coming our way in the future. You're doing good stuff, and I, I love it. I mean, great. We appreciate you as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, on behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness, 
I'll see you next episode. Bye-bye.